May the Lord encourage you through this Lord's Day service if you're watching from home. As we get started, um, you may, if you're part of the church here, you may be wondering where are the rest of the pastors and why is Mark doing all this stuff this morning? Um, it's, it's the summer, so Justin and Amy are on sabbatical, uh, Kenneth and Valerie and Edward and Kylia are all on vacation. But uh, Vince needed to go to the hospital this morning um, because uh, their daughter, Demetra, got readmitted yesterday. She's had some anemia issues. And so um, that was unexpected. And so uh, Vince and Bonnie are there uh, taking care of her. And hopefully they can make some progress understand what's, what's happening there. So uh, this morning, I delight to be able to be here with you. And I am really excited to open the Gospel of Mark with you. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 34. We are in the series called Follow Me. And um, as you hear God's word read in just a moment, my prayer uh, for myself and for everyone watching and everyone here is, is pretty simple this morning. I pray and hope that we will get a vision of the glory and grandeur of Jesus as the greatest teacher ever. That's where it all starts. And then in light of that, that we would have, have hearts to put his teaching into practice. But, but may we receive a vision of the glory of Christ, the teacher. So Patrick Lysite is going to read the passage for us. Thank you, Patrick. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 34. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, it is, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, blessed are those who hear your teaching. And blessed are they who put it into practice. Give us, we pray, ears to hear and hearts to obey. Amen. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot is a wonderful African-American hymn song dating back to the time of slavery. Here's how it starts. You may be familiar with it. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me, coming for to carry me home. The singer is looking for a chariot with angels to come and bring him home. The, the picture is a picture of this chariot that came to get Elijah and bring him to heaven. The singer is enslaved here on this side of the Jordan in the way that Israel was enslaved in Egypt on that side of the Jordan. But the idea is that when he or she passes through death across the Jordan, they'll be home in the promised land and free at last. Now, songs like this are a treasure for us to have. And songs like this were common early in, uh, in, in early Southern black theology um, people were, uh, in the midst of their oppression and misery, they were coming to faith in Christ and finding this hope beyond the grave. So we asked the question this morning, is there life after death? Is there life after death? And we maybe shouldn't be surprised when people who are mistreated and miserable in the here and now find it easier to look for hope in the resurrection. And the flip side, we find, don't we, that people who are thriving and succeeding and healthy and wealthy probably find themselves very focused on the here and now because it's so good and giving little thought to life after death. You know, it's likely that the people who received the Gospel of Mark, the first recipients, were people living in Rome in the middle of the first century. 50s or probably early 60s. This was a time when Nero was emperor and Christians were being slaughtered for sport in the Colosseum or sometimes used as human torches for Nero's garden parties. So imagine if you're that church, how your ears might perk up as this gospel is being read in church one day and this passage comes to your hearing and Jesus begins to talk about life after death. This question is put to Jesus about the resurrection. In today's passage, we actually see two questions, two more in a series of questions that are being posed to Jesus. The setting is the same as the last few weeks. Jesus is in the temple courts. It's the, just a few days before he'll be crucified. Uh, that's that's going to happen on a Friday. This is probably a Tuesday of that week. And Jesus has asked a question about the afterlife. And then he's asked a question about the greatest commandment. So twice in our passage, Jesus is addressed as teacher. 
We see that throughout the Gospel of Mark, but I want to particularly focus our attention on this title that he's given in this passage twice, that of teacher. And this is appropriate because Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time, and we get to hear him teach us through these passages. I hope and pray this morning, I have hoped and prayed this morning that we will have eyes to see, that you will have eyes to see the glory of Christ, your teacher. May we be left in awe as a people, marveling at the stunning wisdom of Jesus Christ. He always knows how to read the intentions of the questioners and people that he's talking to. He always knows where to look to find the right answer and when to give it and how to give it, when to ask questions, when to reprove, how to summarize all of the biblical teaching in in one succinct summary. What a marvel he is in his teaching. May we be brought to that place of amazement and marveling at him and also to that place then of leaning into what he has to say to us and putting it into practice. So that's where we're going with these two questions. So let's start with the first one. This is a question about the resurrection. So to unpack this, I'm going to just ask a few questions about these questions. So we're going to start with this. Who is asking? It says, and please keep your Bibles open or turned on as we go through here. Uh, uh, Verse 18 of of, uh, Mark 12. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Who are the Sadducees? Now, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a pastor for a long time. I'm familiar with the idea of the Sadducees, but I don't really, don't really know who they are. I didn't until this week. I hadn't really studied who this group is. They're just mentioned the one time here in the Gospel of Mark. And so let me give you a little background so you can understand who's asking the question because it, it really, who they are plays into how they think about life and their world. And their questions. So these were sort of the blue bloods of of the uh, uh, Israel society. They were this privileged class of aristocrats, okay? The majority of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, they were Sadducees. And some of the high priests had been and were Sadducees. The... um, Sadducees were aligned with a group I mentioned recently, the Herodians, taking their name from King Herod. Herod was king of Israel, but he wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite, an Idumean, but he had been proclaimed king by Rome. And so he was the the king over the nation under Rome's power. And the Sadducees were aligned with the Herodians and Rome. So they were the conservatives of their time in the sense that they liked the status quo and wanted to conserve or preserve things the way they were because they were profiting by it. They were wealthy and comfortable. And so they didn't want any revolutions. They didn't have time for any messiahs. They were on the other side of the fence from the Pharisees that were agitating for religious uh, revival. So the theology of the Sadducees, they're wealthy, they're in places of power, they're prospering, and it's interesting that their theology syncs right up with their status in society. They only followed the five books of Moses. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, that's convenient because the resurrection isn't explicitly talked about in the five books of Moses. So Jesus is going to teach us about uh, an implication in just a moment. But the, the resurrection is mentioned in other parts of the Old Testament that then they set aside. They were very interested in keeping things focused on the here and now in this world. So what are they asking? Well, 
The question is, uh, in verse 19, they say, Moses, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What's he, what are they talking about here? So you need some Old Testament background to understand the question. You can go back and read in Deuteronomy 25 what the situation is here. It's what's come to be called leveret marriage from the, the Latin word levir, which means brother. So the idea is this. If a, if a man is, is married but doesn't uh, have an heir when he dies, there's no, no child and particularly no, no son, what happens with that widow? Well, the idea here is the widow is supposed to marry one of that guy's brothers in order to produce an heir. Now, that sounds strange to us, and it is strange to us because we don't live in a culture like that. But um, we live in a very different culture. But that, this idea was actually practiced in various parts of the world at the time. It wasn't even unique to Israel. So the, the question is, well, what happens if the guy dies and his brother marries the widow and then that guy dies and the next brother marries the widow and then there's seven brothers who all end up married to the same woman and then they all end up dying and then there's a resurrection. Who, who's going to be this, this woman's husband? It's, it's intentionally a ridiculous question and it's an effort to discredit Jesus in public because this is a very public setting. It's an effort to undermine his authority as a teacher. So what would you do if someone asked you an insincere and ridiculous question in public. Well, let's see what Jesus does. How does Jesus respond? Verse 24, then Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he starts telling them that they're wrong and that they're wrong for two reasons. If you were here for the message last week, we saw Jesus again, was responding to insincere questions last week. And, and both times he, he responded with questions of his own. Here we see a question in the form of a rebuke, in the form of a question. It's a rhetorical question. And he says two things to these, these askers, these Sadducees. He says, first, you don't know the scriptures. Though, of course, they did know the scriptures and they're citing the scriptures. But, but hear this. Slow down and consider this. They knew the Bible in a way that only reinforced what they already believed. They wanted the Bible to reinforce their comfortable status, their politics, their wealth, and their power. And that is the wrong starting point. And Jesus says to them, you don't know the scriptures. Jesus explains that resurrection isn't just restarting life as we know it here. It's actually a transformed, different kind of life, a glorified life, we could say, in light of the rest of Scripture. He says they will be neither marrying, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage and procreation won't carry over into the new creation. There won't be need for that. And so, in a sense, we will all be single. And in a sense, we will all be married because the great marriage is the wedding between Christ and his bride. And he says, we'll all be like angels. Sometimes when someone dies, there are you know, thoughts of, well, God needed another star in heaven or God needed another angel. And that's not the idea here. He doesn't say we will all be angels. He says we'll be like angels, which means we'll be embodied because our bodies matter to God. We'll be immortal will be in God's presence like the angels. 
So he says, you don't know the scriptures. And then he says, you don't know the power of God. And he goes back, and I love this. He gives them a little Bible study from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And I love this because I didn't understand what was going on here either. Here's Exodus 3, 6. The context of this passage is God is speaking to Moses. Moses is out in the desert. He sees this bush that's burning. It's not being consumed. He goes and, and see, to see what's going on. And, and God starts to talk to him out of the bush. He says, take off your, your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. And, and here's, here are the words of Exodus 3 and verse 6. And he, Yahweh, God, said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, Jesus comes to this passage and he says, see, this proves that the dead will be raised. And you Sadducees should know it. Now, I have to be humble here and just confess, it's not been immediately evident to me how that's obvious in this passage. Maybe it is to you, but it wasn't. This wouldn't have been my proof text for life after death. But Jesus goes here because the Sadducees only believed in the five books of Moses. So he's willing to meet them on common ground. Because he's loving his neighbor and he's showing them the way forward, even though their hearts are hard. And so what he says is, he's, this is it's so important that we understand the context of, of this passage. In this passage, God is revealing his name to Moses. He's, sending, he's saying, Moses, you're going to go lead this people. And he says, well, how, how will I know how to tell them who sent me? And, he, and God says, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. And my name is Yahweh, which is a derivative of that, that I am statement. When God says that, do you know what he's saying about himself? I am who I am. He's saying he exists always. He has no beginning and no end. He doesn't depend on anyone else to exist. He is completely self-sufficient. He is, he is the eternal God. If there's life in the universe, it's because it's come from him. If there's a creation, it's because it's come from him. And so he's saying he's the God who brought Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into being and then into covenant with him. Now here's... Here's what Jesus gets out of this passage that I finally got this week. Here's how I think this proves life after death. How does this prove the resurrection of the dead? Think about it. If God brings someone, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, for example, into covenant with him and watches over them all the days of their lives and they become his people and he becomes their God, does it all end when they die? Think about that. Can death break God's covenant with these people? Is death more powerful than a covenant relationship with the God of life? Which will have the final word in these people's lives? Death or God's covenant? And you know what Jesus says? It's not death. It's God's covenant. If the living God the eternal, everlasting God who has no beginning and no end can bring people into covenant relationship with him. Well, he's more powerful than death. So there must be life after death and resurrection from the dead. Now, when God makes a covenant with you, you will rise 
from the dead to be with him forever. That's why in Psalm 105, it's called an everlasting covenant. He's the God of the living because he's the living God. Isn't that awesome? I love that Jesus opens that up for us in Ezekiel, Exodus 3.6. So what's he teaching us here? Well, the Sadducees profess to follow God, but in their prosperity and power, they learn to live for this life only. And I wonder, where would there be wealthy, prosperous, comfortable people today who learn to live for this life only? And I say, well, I think we live in that place. You know, Fairfax County is one of the wealthiest country, counties in the country. And it's the wealthiest country in the world, really in many ways in the history of the world. It may not feel like this every day, but we live in the midst of extraordinary power and prosperity and comfort. In fact, just ponder in your daily life, school, work, media, what reminds you and prepares you for eternity, for life after this life. You know, one day every Sadducee and every resident of Northern Virginia and everyone else will stand before our maker and judge and give account for our lives and we will enter then into eternal judgment or eternal life with God. Comfortable living can be numbing to an eternal perspective. So I say, brothers and sisters, Beyond guard, we live in a dangerous place. As the Apostle Paul writes, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So I urge you to fight for that eternal perspective to fight, to hold on to that vision of the resurrection. How can we do that? One way is through generosity. Generosity is an act of spiritual warfare against this worldly living. Fight against this worldly living by loving the outsiders, the marginalized, the miserable, and the, the hopeless, by being daring and taking risks of faith for Christ and his kingdom. So question one is a question about life after death. Question two is about the most important commandment. This picks up in verse 28. Who's asking this? Well, it says in verse 28, look back there with me, please. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So the scribes, if you've been reading through the gospel of Mark, you find they, they are in view throughout the, the gospel and they'll particularly coming to view in next week's uh, passage as well. They're Israel's teachers. They're the guardians of scripture and theology, and they have been Jesus's steady opponents. Jesus's discussion with these Sadducees is taking place out in a big public setting, and lots of people are listening in. And this guy hears what's going on, and he says, oh, that was a good answer. I want to see what he'll do with my question. And so he, he comes and he, and he asks this question, which is the most important commandment of all? What's he asking? What's he, what's he doing here? He's really saying in the 37 books of the Old Testament, what's the essence of its teaching? What's it all about? It's a lot to summarize into one thing, isn't it? You know, I, if I were to ask you or if you were to ask people, hey, what's the, what's the Bible all about or what's the Old Testament all about? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's it, what's it all about? I think lots of people would gravitate towards, oh, it's a bunch of rules it's a bunch of laws. It's a bunch of things you have to do. 
And Jesus says something very different than that. How does he respond? I want you to notice what he does. Again, he goes back to his Bible and he quotes it from memory. I don't think he's pausing to pull out the scrolls here. And he goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, which he quotes verbatim here. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jewish people call this passion, portion of scripture the Shema, the word Shema for the word hear, hear, O Israel. It's an affirmation of the the oneness of God and the exclusivity of God. There is one God and only one. And the essence of relating to him is what? Follow the rules, dude. No. What's the essence of it? You shall love the Lord your God. That's about love. These are people that have been brought by God's love into covenant with him. That's how they got in a relationship with him. And now in response, they're called to love him back. The essence of the Old Testament is love. Love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. These aren't four different components. Like in a car, you might have an engine and a transmission and wheels and the body, four different components, one car. These aren't like that. They're overlapping. This is an overlapping summary of all that you are. Your internal life, your desires, your thoughts, your feelings and emotions. You know, God wants you to love him with your feelings and emotions, your decisions and, and your words and your actions. This is not a superficial, surfacy love. It's not a check-the-box kind of love. Jesus has the authority and the wisdom as a teacher to summarize 37 books of the Old Testament into this one command plus one more. And this one comes from Leviticus. Did you know this was in Leviticus? Here's what it says, Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but, and here's the part Jesus quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Is that what you thought the book of Leviticus was about? Did you know it's about love? You're getting a little Bible study from Jesus about Leviticus here. As a young Christian, I heard a message in which we were taught that we needed, the first thing we needed to do in life was learn how to love ourselves so that then we could go and love others. And later I came to understand that's not exactly the idea here. This isn't a command to love yourself first and then love others. It's an observation that we're by disposition really good at loving ourselves And we want to learn and take those skills and turn them outward to love others. Our fallen disposition is to love ourselves and use others to further the love of ourselves. But God's call in covenant with him is to have a new disposition to others. Instead of using other people for our self-centered purposes, we relate to them with a disposition to love and serve them. Can you just marvel with me at how Jesus unpacks Exodus 3, 6 and Leviticus 19 and all of the Old Testament? What a teacher. And he pulls it all together in this. What's the most important command? Love God with wholehearted devotion and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says, that was a really good answer. And I just cringe when he says this because I think, If he's saying this out of arrogant self-righteousness, 
like some of these other people that have been talking to him, he's about to get hammered. But he gets a very different answer. And then he, he instructs Jesus a little more. He says, love is greater than all these temple activities. And remember, there's probably smoke ascending in the background here from the sacrifices that he's referring to. And Jesus says, <clears throat> he knows how to read his hearers. The scribes are mostly very hard-hearted and his opponents. But he knows that not all groups are monolithic. And he says to this guy, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's watching this guy move towards salvation. And all are left in awe. And it says, no one dared ask him any more questions. What's he teaching us? Well, Jesus has come to, as one author put it, put these commands within our reach. Israel was called to them, but over and over they failed to keep them. And now we see, reading through this gospel, Israel's leaders are persistently hostile to Jesus. Think about it in these terms. Jesus is their neighbor. What are they doing with their neighbor? They hate him and they're going to kill him. How about what's Jesus doing with his neighbors? Well, just slow down and ponder this. Jesus has come to love his neighbors by becoming our neighbor. This is the eternal, self-sufficient, I am who I am, son of God. And he took on humanity in order to become our neighbor. So that, in a, having become a human being, he could become our ransom. He could die for our sins and rise for our justification. No greater love of neighbor has ever been seen. Jesus atones for every one of your failures. Every place you have failed to love God and love neighbor, Jesus Christ, if you are his disciple, he has paid for that. He has ransomed you from captivity to living that way. He's sent you his spirit. He's given you a new heart. He's empowering you to go and love God and love others. And he models what this looks like so we can see it in human form. So we can now love God and love neighbor. What does this look like? Well, I find, I find it helpful just to start with, with questions. Wherever I am in, in, in my life, whatever is going on, and especially if I'm irritated, struggling, frustrated, worried, just start with this. What would it look like for me to love God right now with my desires, with my feelings, with my decisions, in my actions? I just find it helpful to slow down. It reframes everything to start with this. Here's what's most important. God is on the scene and, and I have the opportunity in the midst of this to love him. And then that's the vertical because I don't usually start with the vertical. When I get in trouble, I go all horizontal. And Jesus is saying, no, start with the vertical. He's loved us. Now we can love him. And then what does it look like to, to love our neighbor? I had so much I was going to say here and I, someday maybe do more of a, a longer message on this. But during worship, as we were singing, I was just reminded of a story. I don't know, something about one of the songs must have reminded me of this. So I'm going to, didn't, I didn't prepare this, so I'm going to limp my way through this, but, but I hope you'll find it edifying. When, when Leslie and I were in college, we were, we were living during a time of kind of a, a, a revival, the Jesus movement. And we lived in this area where there were lots of hippies and lots of people living very counterculturally. And there was this couple 
that lived in this very rural setting. I don't know if, if it was a house or maybe even a tent or something like that, but it's kind of on a mountain, very, very rural. And there was no, there was no lighting to get up the path to where they lived. But there was a house at the bottom of the path. And in that house lived this Christian couple. And, and this, this couple had reached out to the, the, the couple that lived up on the, on the hill and, and they'd shared the gospel with them and tried to love them and, and, and they'd gotten no response. And so um, one night, it, it's dark, it's raining. There, again, there's no lights. And, and when this, this young couple comes to, to go up to their, the, that muddy path to the place they lived, there were candles that had been set out to light up the path. And that act of love was the trigger that drew that young couple to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That older couple had reached out to him and shared the good news with them. But it was the candles and the rain that resulted in those two coming to faith. You know how I remember that? Because they wrote a song called Candles in the Rain. And I remember them singing it in, at Arcata First Baptist Church when we were attending there. And they were testifying that as, as important as the gospel testimony was to them that they heard from this couple and probably from others too, it was that act of love, a simple act of love for a neighbor in a dark and rainy night to leave some lights out there that drew them to Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor, to put yourself in their shoes to try to see life the way they do. And as God would give you grace and opportunity to extend love to them. And we are in a room, I, I could spend the next hour just going through and pointing out where I see that in people here. It's a privilege to be a part of a group of people loving your neighbors the way you do. So, Two questions. What does it look like? Uh, uh, question about eternal life and a question about the greatest commandment. I want to just try to, to pull this together, putting it into practice. I've given you some, some suggestions, starting with primarily marveling at Jesus. But there's a sub-theme here that I, I just want to touch on because it, it's, it's running kind of in the background in all these passages, and I don't want us to miss it. What is Jesus teaching us here as he's our teacher? What's he teaching us about the Bible? I want you to, 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 to get this. He's teaching us a couple things. I just want to highlight. It's, it's obvious, but I don't want us to miss it. Well, first, we need all of it. If you're, if you're reading through Mark 11 and 12, you'll find that Jesus recites from memory in public Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Can you see that the Sadducees who'd cut off most of the Bible, but Jesus is reaching into all different parts of the Bible. The books of Moses, the prophets, Psalms, and everything that goes in between. And I want to just pause for a moment and ask you, are you doing the same thing? Are those parts of the Bible active for you? The books of Moses, the writings, the history books, the prophets. It's all given for our instruction. It's all inspired. Are there parts of the Bible that you've never read? You, are, you have a great discovery waiting for you. 
God will meet you. Christ is revealed in every page of the scriptures. So let us be a church that that increasingly reads and applies all the words that God has spoken to us. So we need all of it. But second, just again, we can observe it's right in front of us here. It's possible to read the Bible and miss the point, isn't it? To the Sadducees, Jesus said, you're wrong. And I hope and pray I don't ever have to hear Jesus say that to me. <laughs> they, they were wrong because they, it seems they had the wrong starting point. Scripture became a tool for reinforcing their way of living. They, they started with their commitment to politics and prosperity and power. And then they came to the Bible for reinforcements. It's like the old illustration of buttoning up your shirt. If you get the first button wrong, it's going to be wrong all the way up. And it's not going to look right in the end. And so in the same way, we have to have this right starting point when we come to Scripture. We must never allow politics or sexuality or nationalism or education or anything else to get in front of Scripture. And the primary message of Scripture is Jesus Christ and him crucified. So one quick test to find out if we're reading Scripture God's way is to ask yourself, when you read scripture, does the gospel come into view? Do you see our disposition to need a savior and God's disposition to provide one in Christ? And are you left marveling and rejoicing and then obeying in response? Well, there you go. May we be left in awe of the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus Christ. Marvel at his stunning wisdom. And may we have grace to love God by putting into practice what we learn so that we can go love our neighbor as well. Okay, we're going to transition here.